Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a study of the Gospel according to Mark. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. This morning we are going to be looking at one of the more controversial sections of the New Testament. We're going to be looking at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Now, months and months ago, when I said that we were going to read through verse by verse, work our way through the book of Mark, someone who will remain anonymous said to me, I'll be curious to see how you handle the last chapter. Well, I'm going to handle the last chapter the same way I've handled the whole rest of the book, which is just to tell you the facts. What does it say? Why does it say it? How did it get here? Why are we reading it? Last week, we got as far as verse 8, and after I had read verse 8, I said to you, and that's the end of the book of Mark. But then you all noticed, of course, that there were more words after that. And so I said that we would address that this week. And then that's it. We've actually gone verse by verse over the last 18 years through the entirety of the New Testament. And two-thirds of the Old Testament, the only parts that we haven't really explored, are the poetry books. But we've looked at the whole Old Testament historically and put it all in its place. So next week, it is my intention to start over. We're going to go back to the book of Romans, which if you look on the website, that is the earliest teaching that we have on the website. It was actually done in my living room some 20 years ago or so. So I'm anxious to get back to that book. That's what we will do starting next week. So now what are we going to say about chapter 16? 9 through 20. They exist in pretty much all of your versions. Some versions, other than the King James, put those verses in brackets so that you know that they stand apart from the rest of the text. There's actually not just one ending of Mark. There's a couple endings of Mark historically. In fact, in the NASB that's in front of me, What's called the shorter ending is listed in italics at the end of verse 20. And it just says this. It says, and they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. When we refer to the shorter ending of Mark, that's what we're referring to, what I just read. When we say the longer ending of Mark, we're referring to verses 9 through 20. Now, through the years, historically, whenever anybody wants to attack Christianity, they know that the key place that they should attack it is the Word, the Bible. If you can show that the Bible is somehow errant, then you can undermine the entire concept of Christianity. And the end of Mark is one of the places that the critics just glom onto instantly because they question if we say, and we do, that the Bible is inerrant, and then they find something like the longer or shorter ending of Mark, they say, see, there's something that's an error. So if it's an error, how can your Bible be Inerrant. Now, what we mean when we say the Bible is inerrant is that the original autographs, in other words, the original writing by the original apostles, the original writing by the original prophets, the original writing by Moses, we're saying that the originals were without error. But you have to remember that those documents were then copied and copied and copied. I, I have a blog. This will tie in in just a moment. I have a blog and I have a computer. 
In fact, in my house, there are more computers than there ought to be. Those computers have spell check. I even use Grammarly. So it checks my grammar and it checks my spelling. And I write articles and I double check them. And even with all that technology, once they hit the internet, somebody will write to me and say, you know, you misspelled that word. I make grammatical mistakes, I make spelling mistakes, even though I have all this technology behind me helping me to not make those kinds of mistakes. I say all that to say, imagine copying books of the Bible by hand. So you're looking to your left and you're looking at what you're copying. You look to your right and you copy. You look to your left and you see it, look to your right. What are the chances you're going to miss a letter? Maybe a word. What are the chances maybe you're going to leave off the cross, off a T? Or As your eye is scanning this written material that you're now copying, maybe you miss a line. Well, at this point in time, we have in excess of 25,000 New Testament manuscripts. Some of those New Testament manuscripts date as early as the second century. Jesus lived in the first century. The Bible was written in the first century. We still have extant copies going all the way back to the beginning or midway through the second century. So we have really, really early manuscripts. And we can look at those early manuscripts and then we can look at later copies And by doing that, we can recognize where people made errors, where people in their copying made mistakes. So you'll hear people say to you that there are these textual anomalies, and they will say there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And in truth, there are. But what we're talking about in these little textual errors, what we're talking about are missed words or missed letters or things like that. And it's only because we as Christians, academic Christians, have taken the time to do very careful looking at the text, which is called textual criticism. That doesn't mean criticism like saying, it's the text, stupid. It means criticism like looking at things critically, really examining them. And because we have, like I said, in excess of 25,000 copies of the New Testament dating back to such an early period, we have a very good sense of what is actually in the original autographs. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, we have so many copies of the New Testament that we definitely have, all these years later, a really, really good sense of exactly what was written down And when we compare our modern versions in translation to our language, when we compare that back to the earliest texts that we have that go back to the second century, they still say the same thing. Because people will try to tell you that the Bible has been handed down from person to person through so many hands, and it's been written down by so many people that people have added things and taken away things, and as a consequence, the modern Bible we have today, we have no idea whether it's actually valid or not because of how many hands have handled it. But the truth of the matter is, God in his sovereignty, by making sure that the New Testament was copied and copied and copied and copied, made sure that the original New Testament was preserved so that even to today we can go back and look at those early copies. We can find all the textual variants, all the textual errors, and we can see exactly what the Bible originally said. So when you ask the question, do we have a valid copy of Mark? The answer is yes. But the oldest copies of Mark end at verse 8. Now, when the King James Bible was being translated, the King James translators only had access to some early manuscripts. Since then, we've discovered earlier manuscripts. I keep saying we, like I'm personally doing it. Uh, We, the Christian church, have older manuscripts to access now than the King James translators did back in 1611. 
So as a consequence, the newer translations take into account what these older manuscripts have said, and that's why you'll see the King James not make a differentiation between verses 9 through 20, and the newer manuscripts will, because they're pointing out that even though these are part of Christian history, they may not be part of what Mark originally wrote. So do we have a valid, verifiable copy of Mark? The answer is yes. All of Mark is here. We've already read all of Mark. It's just that the ending of Mark has been added. Now, when was it added and by who? We don't know. It could have been some early copyist who felt that the ending of Mark was just very abrupt. And I'm going to show you that because it is. It's just kind of abrupt. And yet, I'm going to try to prove to you that it's actually appropriate, that it's very in keeping with Mark's way of thinking to end right there where he ended. Everything that you're going to read in verses 9 through 20 can be found somewhere else in the other Gospels. And I'm going to show you that, with the single exception of the idea of handling snakes and drinking poison. Although, if the person who added the longer ending of Mark was familiar with Luke's writing in the book of Acts, then you read about Paul shaking off a snake, and he didn't get sick from it. So maybe that's what they had in their mind. The whole drinking poison thing, maybe not. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But for those of you snake handling, poison drinking folks, it's going to be pretty hard to defend what you're doing based on the end of Mark. Let me give you some sense of how accurate the Bible we have is. As I said, we have in excess of 25,000 New Testament ancient manuscripts. There are 5,600 Greek manuscripts that date back to as early as the second century. There's a manuscript called P52. It's part of the book of John. It's dated from 100 to 150 AD. And John was alive into the late 90s AD. So we know that those early manuscripts, those early copies like P52, were probably a copy of the original. We still have that. We still have access to it. Then, right around 382 to 405 AD, we have 8,000 ancient copies of the New Testament in Latin. That's known as the Vulgate. So that, again, is a really early, early copy, a real early, early rendition of the New Testament. And we can go back and check all of that. We have the New Testament in the language of Syriac. We've got 350-plus copies of that that, again, date back to like 200 AD. So these are really, really early manuscripts so we can have some confidence that we really do know what the Bible says. Plus, we also have the writing of what's referred to as the church fathers, the anti-Nicene fathers. What that means is men, theologians, who wrote prior to the Council of Nicaea, the anti-Nicene fathers. And they wrote extensively about the Bible, about the New Testament, so much so that in the writing of the church fathers prior to 325 AD, there are 32,000 quotes from the New Testament. They have 19,000 quotes from the Gospels, so we could actually go back look at everything the original church fathers wrote, and we could actually reconstruct the vast majority of the New Testament just based on what the Nicene fathers wrote. So we have a tremendous amount of confidence that we know what it originally said. Now, two of the most important ancient documents are called codexes. What a codex is is instead of just being one book of the New Testament, it's an actual bound volume rather than just being a series of scrolls. And there are two early codexes, one called Sinaiticus from 350 AD, one called Vaticanus from 325, and those are codexes of the whole New Testament in the Sinaiticus case and the whole Bible in Vaticanus's case. And both of them end Mark at verse 8. 
That's my point. The earliest codexes we have end mark at verse 8. In the 4th century, both Eusebius and Jerome, both early church fathers, voluminous writers, said that almost all Greek copies of Mark end with the words that we find in verse 8. So they were both convinced that Mark ended at verse 8. So then you might ask, well, then, did those other endings exist when they were writing? Were Eusebius and Jerome familiar with these other endings? And the answer is yes, because in the second century, both Justin Martyr and Tatian wrote that they knew about these other endings. So the other endings are very early, but they're added by a scribe. They're added by somebody or some group of people who felt that Mark just kind of ended rather suddenly, so they do sort of a summation to wrap the book up, and then even if they wrote it as sort of a marginal note or an end note to their copy of the book of Mark, every other copy that was copied from their copy would include that. And eventually, people start thinking, that's how Mark ends. But that is not the way Mark ends. Mark ends rather abruptly with the women being fearful. Listen to this verse. They went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. People apparently just didn't like that ending. Trembling, astonishment, fear, and then it just stops right there. So the question is, is that typical of Mark in his writing style in the whole rest of the book? Is it typical of him to just write of trembling and fear and astonishment and amazement? And so would that be an appropriate ending for Mark? Well, the answer is yes. If you read the whole book of Mark, what you keep seeing over and over again, other than the word immediately, he loves that word immediately, other than that, you keep seeing Mark writing about people who are astonished and fearful. It's all the way through it. In fact, let me show you a few of them. Look at Mark 1.21. We're going to take a quick review through the book of Mark. Look at Mark 1.21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In English letters, that's the Greek word ekpleso. Now, the reason I'm writing it up there is you're going to see it a few times because Mark keeps going back to these ideas that people are just so amazed. And it means to strike people with astonishment, that the people were just astonished at the teaching of Jesus. Now, the English translation says amazed. And the NASB is going to use that English word amazed to translate several different Greek words. So I'm going to point out the different Greek words here to you. Go down to 123. It says, just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. He cried out saying, what business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were amazed. Now this is the Greek word thambeo. That's the Greek word thambeo, which means like to stupefy, to surprise, to kind of astound people. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So he is driving out demons and it causes them to be amazed by it. Chapter 2 verse 10 says, 
But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up, and immediately he picked up his pallet, and he went out of the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed, astonished out of their wits. And they were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. That's the Greek word existemi. And it means the same thing, to just astound them out of their wits. There's this astonishment in everything that Mark sees, everything that Jesus does, whether it's driving out demons, whether it's his teaching, whether it's healing people, they continue to just be astonished by it. Well, along with their astonishment also comes fear. Chapter 4, verse 39 says, He got up and he rebuked the wind and he said, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you have no faith? And they became very much afraid. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the Greek word. See if this word looks familiar to you. Does that look familiar? Phobeo. What English word did we get from that? Phobia. Phobias are the end of just about every fear there is. Pick something you're afraid of. They put that word and phobia together. You have a fear of those things. So they were very much alarmed. They were very much frightened. They were very much amazed. They were very much astounded. They were completely out of their minds. Chapter 5, verse 14 says that the herdsmen ran away and reported all this into the city, and the people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus, and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had a legion in them, in him, and they became frightened. Same word, phobeo. They're in phobia over this. Chapter 5, verse 30, immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had proceeded forth from him, he turned around and said, who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd that's pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, same word, phobeo, the woman fearing and trembling then aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So people are trembling. People are fearful. People are amazed. People are astonished. Mark keeps emphasizing this fact in everything that Jesus does. Chapter 5, verse 41. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were all completely astounded. Ecstasis. What word, what English word comes from that? Ecstasy. They're just, they're amazed. They're in wonderment. They just can't believe what they're seeing. She was dead. And she got up and she's living again. And they are ecstatic over it. Chapter 6, verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they saw him, and they were terrasso. They were just completely terrified which is what that word means. They see him walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. They're absolutely terrified. And they're, they're troubled. They're agitated by the fact that, that someone's walking on the water, which you would be. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it's I. Do not be phobeo. Do not be afraid. And then he got into the boat and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished, which is this ecstasy word 
He keeps going back to these words of utter astonishment, utter amazement, fear, quaking, overtaking people. Wherever Jesus is, whatever Jesus does, he brings this sense of astonishment and fear. In the Mount of Transfiguration, chapter 9, verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say to Jesus, for they became terrified, ekphobos. That ek prefix means out. Phobos means fear. They were fearful out of their head. They were out of their minds with fear. As a consequence, Peter didn't know what he was saying. Well, yes, that makes complete sense. Chapter 9, verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a huge crowd around him. Some of the scribes arguing with them immediately. When the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed. Ekthambeo is actually the word. Again, you get that out and then utterly astonished. They were astonished out of their minds. You give me a sense of all these words? The reason I'm writing them all up on the board is that these are all words that Mark uses. And all of these words mean fearful, astonished, amazed. And Mark uses all these words in order to say Jesus had that effect on people. Mark 9, verse 30. From there they went out and they began to go through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know about it for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he has been killed he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement and they were afraid. Phobeo. They were afraid to ask him. Chapter 10 verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard will it be for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed. Thambeo. They were stupefied that he would make this kind of statement. But Jesus answered again and said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Mark 10, 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were thumbeo. They were amazed. And those who followed were phobeo. They were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen when they reached Jerusalem. Chapter 11, verse 17, and he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid, phobeo, of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at Plesso. They were all astonished at his teaching. Chapter 12, verse 17. Am I beating a dead horse yet? Are you getting a sense of this? I just want you to be overwhelmed by the evidence here. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. This is another word. Ek thomazo. Again, with that ek out of, they were, they were wondering at him, marveling at him with great wonder is what that word means. They were just marveling at the wisdom that the Pharisees could try to wrap him up and tie him up in his own logic and that he escaped every trap. So they wondered at him. Chapter 15, verse 4, then Pilate questioned him again saying, do you not answer me? You see how many charges they bring against you, but Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate was, same basic word without the ek prefix, he was thamazo. He was amazed. And in fact, that word means admiration. He was astounded and admired and marveled at Jesus. So then my point is, in reciting all of this to you, Is it any wonder that in chapter 16, starting at verse 4, we would read, looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed, ekthombeo. They were astonished utterly by it. 
And he said to them, do not be amazed, same word, at thumbeo. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. Go and tell his disciples and Peter, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling. This is the word tromos. Put it over here. I'm running out of board space. There are so many words. Tromos. What English word do we get from that? Trauma. For tromos had overtaken them. That's the word trembling and fear there. And astonishment. Ecstasis. This displacement of the mind because everything was so unlike their expectations that it drove them basically out of their minds with amazement, bewilderment, ecstasy. And it had gripped them, so they said nothing to anyone, for they were phobeo, afraid. So, does verse 8 of Mark chapter 16 logically make sense Having looked at everything else Mark has said and the way he has used amazement and fear and astonishment, does it make sense that he would end on a note of astonishment, amazement, that the women were fearful? That makes complete sense. Grammatically, word choice, everything else, it's completely in keeping with what Mark thinks and how Mark writes. In fact, as I told you last week, he starts at saying that he's going to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, and it ends with a Roman centurion looking up at Jesus and saying, surely this was the Son of God. That's the theme of the book. That's the point of the book. And everything in between those two bookends is Jesus being amazing. Jesus being astounding. Jesus causing people to just be utterly out of their minds when they see what he's like and what he does. So that, to me, makes perfect sense. So now let's look at the longer ending and see if that makes sense. I argue that it doesn't. However, even though it doesn't make sense as the end of Mark, it is completely biblical. There's nothing said in verse 9 through verse 20 that's contrary to anything else you could find. And in fact, I'm going to show you the parallels because it's all said somewhere else in the Bible. So let's look at the longer ending. The transition from verse 8 to verse 9 is grammatically really, really clumsy. It starts with the word now. It's the the little pronoun day. Well, it's a primary particle is what it is. And usually that kind of word works as a conjunction. In other words, sometimes it's translated as but or also, and now, and it's always referring back to what just happened. Okay, so in verse 8, we're reading about the women, and they're afraid, and now we jump into a completely different topic for no good reason. So there's no reason to start with the word now, especially considering that the pronoun is a masculine pronoun. Now he, that's even more odd considering that verse 8 is about women and astonishment had gripped the women, verse 9 starts, now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. So it's grammatically clumsy, and it's not the way Mark has written through the entire rest of his gospel. So that leads us to believe that it wasn't Mark's doing that somebody else added this little pericope to the end. For instance, the angel says, we just read it, the angel says that Jesus is going to Galilee and he's going to meet Peter and the disciples in Galilee, but every appearance we read about in the longer ending actually occurs in Jerusalem. Okay, so that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not a natural follow-up as if Mark, who would know what he had just wrote, 
He wouldn't then say, he went to Galilee, and then, no, he kept seeing him in Jerusalem. He would have talked about the Galilee appearances, which the other gospel writers do actually write about. And in fact, it's even more interesting that Jesus has just said, go to Galilee, tell the apostles and Peter, and then in the longer ending of Mark, Peter's not mentioned. Doesn't come up anywhere. Seems like if Mark took the time to say, and Peter specifically, especially if Mark is being tutored by Peter, he would mention something about appearances to Peter. It's not there. The other gospel writers write about Jesus' appearances to Peter, but it's not here in the longer ending. So these are some of the reasons that we conclude that the longer ending is not original, not written by Mark, written by some copyist or some committee who felt that ending at verse 8 was just too abrupt. So let's go through it verse by verse real quick. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. Starting at verse 9. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. And after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along the way in the country. And they went away and they reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. And afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining all at a table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has not believed or he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who have believed in my name. They will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, and they will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and they preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by signs that followed. Now, everything that I just read, with the exception of the snake handling, poison drinking stuff, everything else can be confirmed somewhere else in the Gospels or in the writing of the Gospel writers. For instance, look at verse 9. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. That's confirmed over in the book of Luke. Luke 8, the first three verses, talk about Mary Magdalene, who Jesus had driven seven demons out of. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So it's not unknown that there was a woman called Mary Magdalene who was following Jesus out of whom seven demons had come. That's known from Luke's writing. Verse 10 says, she went and reported those things to him while they were weeping and mourning. John 20 verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said all these things to her. So that's confirmed. Mark 16, 11 Verse 11 says, when they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Also, verse 13 says, they went away, they reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Well, Luke 24, verses 10 and 11 say the same thing. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and also the other women were with them, and they were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them to be as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Same thing. Verse 12, after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them as they walked on their way to the country. That's the road to Emmaus. You can read about that in Luke 24, verses 13 to 32. I won't read the whole thing to you, but you know that that's when Jesus was walking with them and hid himself from them and was preaching to them. 
Verse 14, afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were, were reclining at the table. He reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after his rising. Luke 24, 36 says, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Same thing. Verse 15 says, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Also, verse 16 says, he who's believed and is baptized shall be saved. He who is disbelieved shall be condemned. Matthew 28, verse 19. That's what we know is the Great Commission. Same thing. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Verses 17 and 18, these signs will accompany those who have believed in my name. They will cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. That seems to be drawn from various sources that talk about the miracles through the rest of the gospels. For instance, we know that they laid hands on people and that they recovered when they were sick. We know that Jesus, the first time he sent out his disciples by twos, he told them to go out and drive demons out of people. So we know that's true. We know that they spoke in tongues. We know the Pentecost story. We know that tongue speaking was part of it. We know that Paul was bit by a serpent. He shook it off. He didn't suffer any harmful effects from it. It's just that deadly poison thing except that the word poison is added by the translators. What it actually says is, if you drink any deadly thing. Now, in the Middle East, it's really hard to find clean water. That's one of the reasons that they used to mix wine in with their water, believing that the fermented wine would help to purify the water before they drank. It was really difficult to find good water. So maybe that's what he was talking about. Maybe the idea, if you drink any deadly thing, it will be pure to you. Maybe that's what they were thinking. But basically, I'm just going to go on record as saying, once again, you snake handlers and poison drinkers have misunderstood the whole thing. Verse 19, so then when Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. Well, that's Acts 1, 9 through 11. While he was speaking these things, he was lifted up. While they were looking on, a cloud received him out of their sight. And they were gazing intently into the sky as he was going, and behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. It's also Matthew twenty-two forty-four, which is quoting from the Psalms. The Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. So everything that we've just read out of verse 19 is said elsewhere in the Gospels. And finally, and they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Okay. I've talked a mile a minute now for the last 50 minutes. And all I was trying to do is prove something to you. First, I'm trying to prove to you that if Mark actually ends at verse 19 as the most ancient of the codexes and copies say it does, if it ends there, it's completely appropriate given all these Greek words that are on the board because that's exactly the way Mark writes. It's exactly the way Mark thinks. If you were to go back and read all the Greek words that are in these last verses from verse 9 to verse 20, you're going to find 18 words that Mark never uses in the whole rest of his gospel. Again, giving indication that there's a new writer working, either a person or a committee of people who felt that Mark just didn't end the way the other gospels ended. But you know what? Mark didn't start the way the other gospels started. Mark doesn't write a birth narrative. He doesn't write any of the stuff that Luke writes. He actually starts at... John the Baptist, and Jesus shows up. So he starts at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he ends at the end of Jesus' ministry. He ends with the resurrection, and people are astounded and amazed again. That kind of feels like Mark feels he's made his point. He has said what he has to say, 
and he's done. Now, maybe, just maybe, and this is just historic speculation, maybe he wasn't done. Maybe he was going to go back and write some more. Maybe with all the troubles and tortures going on in the church, maybe martyrdom interrupted the end of the writing. We don't really know whether it was Peter's martyrdom as Peter was tutoring or whether it was Mark's. We don't really know. Anybody who tells you why Mark stopped right there is speculating. But I'm convinced that he did stop right there because the entirety of what else has been added even though it's technically biblical it doesn't follow the pattern of Mark it doesn't follow the writing of Mark it doesn't follow the word usage of Mark it doesn't follow the grammar of Mark I think it's fine if you have a King James Bible and your whole life you have always read that and believed it was the end of Mark fine because it's biblical it's fine but as far as telling you facts I have to tell you the fact is that Mark stopped right there at verse 8. Now, the reason that I started by telling you all that history and textual stuff and how many copies we have and textual criticism and all the copyist errors down through the years that have been handed to us, the reason I told you all that is because you can have complete and utter confidence that what you're reading is the Word of God. And it is the church that has taken the time to catalog and find all these textual variants so that we can treat the word of God honestly. But the original autographs, the original writing, without error, the original writing is exactly what the Holy Ghost intended to have written. And as a consequence, we have a verifiable, historically verifiable copy of the New Testament. In other words, the Bible you hold in your hand is a precious thing. The Bible you hold in your hand is the very word of God handed down to you by faithful men who have protected it and copied it and preserved it all the way down to you. Don't treat it like it's a light thing. I see sometimes people put their Bibles on the floor and I wonder what they're thinking when they do that. I told you once that years ago, years ago, I was at Main Street Baptist Church with David Morris and his son was with me. I think Seth was with me. Little boy, little boy, covered in freckles, little tiny guy, cute as a bug, if bugs are cute. And I had my Bible with me and I had a camera with me and I set my Bible down and I took my camera off and I was about to set my camera on the Bible so that I had all my stuff just right there on the table downstairs at Main Street Church. And as I was about to set my camera on my Bible, Seth's eyes got very big like pie pans. And I thought to myself, I'm about to do something very wrong. I just don't know what it is. But I can see it in his eyes that I'm about to horrify him. And I set my camera on my Bible and Seth said, we're not allowed to put anything on our Bibles. I've never done it again. That moment caught me. That moment affected me. That moment made me realize yet again, yes, this is the very word of God. This is the very living word of God that has the ability to change people, has the ability to change lives, and has the ability to let worms like us know stuff about God. And we can have full and utter confidence that it is the very word of God, and we really ought to treat it as such. So, now that we've looked at the entirety of the New Testament, we're going to go back and look at it again. Because there's nobody in this room who has mastered it, including me. And if anybody ever tells you that they have mastery of the Bible, do not walk, run away. Because if any human being could ever achieve actual mastery, actual superior knowledge of the Bible, then it's not the word of God. If any person, any worm can rise to the point where they believe that they've got the Bible figured out completely and they know everything it says and is supposed to say and what it means, but that person's fooling themselves. And it's not the word of God. The word of God, as it says, is so much higher 
as high as the heavens are above the earth, says God, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your ways. So don't ever start to think that you've actually achieved some sort of mastery of the Bible. You will spend the rest of your life digging into this word and trying to understand and comprehend the depth and the breadth of it. I know I've devoted half my life now to it. And I feel like I'm just scratching the surface and I can't wait to start again. Next week, we start again. Questions? Yes, sir. Just a comment. I have to tell you, when I was hanging that board and the pulpit was here right in front, I, I laughed out loud finally. And I thought, if somebody's watching, they're going to think I'm insane. But I kept trying to turn around and put my tools on the closest thing, which was, and every time I did, I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I finally set them on the floor, and I was going back up and down off the floor, and I thought, I could have to my parents, I guess, because I, I wasn't yeah. consciously thinking of it. But then I turned around and tape measure one time, couldn't set it there. And pencil, I couldn't set it there. I put them in my pocket, I put them on the floor, my hammer, I just couldn't do it. I think it's appropriate. Yeah. Because I think we've kind of reached familiarity with God where sometimes we forget that some things are just dedicated to him. They're his. They're not for our common use. They're not for just everyday play. So I, I appreciate that you did that. You know, I, ever since we got this pulpit which is only dedicated to this. This is all it does. It's just for preaching. When homeschool was here or anything else, they would get the podium out of the back, but they couldn't stand here and do this. This is just for the preaching of God's word. When there's nobody in this building, there's always this open Bible sitting on this pulpit. The word of God is always open on this pulpit. So I think it's appropriate to recognize that some things are holy, not this piece of furniture, but what it represents. The word of God is holy and righteous and separate from us, and we ought to treat it that way. Amen. One person amen that. Where were the rest of you? <laughs> Any other questions or comments? All right, if there are no more questions or comments, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.